Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm Diane Halsey, your host with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This show is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. Before we get to this episode, I want to let you know we are hosting a Zoom event on June 17th. I'll be there with other experts answering your questions about how we keep up the conversation with young children about race and racism. For more information, go to npr.org backslash early risers. So today we're asking a pretty fundamental question that parents might get from their kids. Where does racism come from? I am very excited today about my guest. Resma Minicum is a leading voice in today's conversation on racialized trauma. He is a therapist, trauma specialist, and the New York Times bestselling author of the book, My Grandmother's Hands. I'm really excited about you being here today. <laughs> hey, I'm excited to be here with you. So I, there's so much I want to ask you and so little time. So I'm just going to get right to it. Let's get it. Tell me about the story of your grandmother's hands. My grandmother, uh, her name was Addie Coleman. And when I was coming up, you know, we spent a lot of time over at my grandmother's house because my dad was going through some things and my mom was trying to, you know, work and keep stuff together and stuff like that. So we spent a lot of time over there. In Black families, back when we was coming up, many Black families, at least in Milwaukee, had uh, two TVs. One of them was the Curtis Mathis, was the Curtis. <laughs> and either one of them had sound or, or, or and not had the picture and the other one had sound. <laughs> it's back when we had like six channels, yes. right? And so, and so my grandmother would be laying on the couch with her legs across our thighs and she'd be watching one of the TVs, right? Listening for the sound on one, but watching the other TV, right? Yeah. But she would always kind of like complain that her arthritis was kicking up, right? And so uh, we would rub her hands. And one time I was rubbing her hands and my, my grandmother wasn't necessarily a big framed woman, right? But her hands were huge. My grandmother had these, these big, thick digits on her fingers and the big, thick pads in the middle of her hands and big, thick pads on the back of her hand. And so I'm rubbing her hands you know, probably for the first time of noticing it, right? And then I'm comparing her hands to mine, which which are really thin and angular. So I'm looking at them, rubbing her hands. My grandmother's sitting there. And then I say, I say, Grandma. And she watched the TV, probably a Bucks game, because that was her favorite thing to do. I said, Grandma, why are your hands so fat? Mm-hmm. Kind of like jesting, like a laugh, right? Because my grandmother was very funny. My grandmother would fart on you in a minute, right? And so... <laughs> She was, <laughs> she was funny, right? And so I said, Grandma, why are your hands so fat? And my grandmother, without even looking at me, without breaking her gaze from the TV, she goes, oh, boy, that's for picking cotton. Mm. And, and I just sat there for a second. My grandmother must have picked up on the vibe. Mm-hmm. So she looked at me. She goes, boy, you ever seen a cotton plant? 
I go, no, ma'am. And she said, come plant got these birds in it. And, you know, my father was a sharecropper. So we started walking up and down the roads when I was four years old. I had no shoes. So we walking up and down the road picking that cotton. So when my hands when four years old, you put your hands in there. Those birds rip your hands up. Right. And when it, and, and, and they start to bleed. And and so your hands uh, until they get them calluses, that's all. That's all meat. That's all them callus. Right. That's the way she's talking. And, and I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I know I need to pay attention to this. Her nervous system is doing something. Her nervous system is activating in a way. And I left my body when she did that. And then she she finished the story and then she started watching TV again. Hmm. And I'm like, wow. I did not remember that story again until I started writing the book. Wow. And the reason why the book even came about was because I did two years in Afghanistan working as a community care counselor. So I worked with civilians on these military bases. So whenever something would happen on these bases, my job was to get on the helicopter, get on the plane and go to those bases and process the base, determine who could stay there in terms of civilians, deter- give people some support, all, you know, deal with people who are dealing with, you know, seeing some of the most horrible things you can imagine. And so for two years, I had to override my own uh, responses to horror in order to work with people who were uh, being traumatized daily. There's a sound when they shoot rockets down into the camp. Civilians have this idea in their brain that when you, when that happens, you hear something like almost like wily coyotes. That's what we think. But really it makes, there's a sound that those things make and it makes this sound. It's like that. It goes like that. And and one of the things that happens is that when you're on these bases, you are listening for that sound, even when you don't know you're listening for that sound, because you're because when you hear that sound, you're supposed to drop to the ground because when those rockets come in, they hit and all of the nails and razor blades and everything that they have packed in there go up about four feet and then out. Right. And if you're standing up, you're more likely to get hit. But if you hit the ground and start rolling, it may hit and then and then all of the stuff go up above you. Okay, okay. Right? And so you're always walking around listening for it, right? Or the big voice that goes, rockets attack, rockets attack, right? And I'm not even talking about the 117, 121 degree heat, right? Mm. So all of that is an attack on the body that in order to do what I needed to do, I had to override. And so I tell people this, that I did that from 2011 to 2013. And then I came home in 2013. I did not land, though, until 2015. Hmm. So tell us, what does that really mean, that your body was somewhere else during those two years? Yeah. 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 So trauma is anything that happens that's too much, too fast, too soon or too long coupled with something reparative that should have happened that did. Okay. Yeah. So it is not just that bad things happen. It's that bad things happen. And then the body doesn't get any reprieve or space or any uh, interventions. There's no, nothing comes in to disrupt it. Mm -hmm. And so for Mm -hmm. two years, that was my experience. Right. And so in order to manage that, I had to leave my body. I couldn't be there. Mm. So you talk a lot about 
how trauma is lodged in your body and what does yeah. that mean? Just like kind of like what you're talking about. So can you talk a yeah. little bit about how does racism lie in your body? Yeah, yeah. Racialized trauma for me starts off with a very simple rubric, right? And the rubric is this. The white body deems itself the supreme standard by which all bodies shall be measured structurally and philosophically. And so any body that is not how in a white body is seen as structurally deviant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? That's yep. why I call it white body supremacy. Right. Remember the race question in this country is actually a species question. There's always been a species question, right? Is Diane, is Resma, are they human or are they lesser primate? Mm-hmm. That, that notion is woven in and around and through every institution, every interaction, every moral, every story, every do you understand what I mean? I do. So 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 that piece of using pigmentation as shorthand for humanness, right, is something that white people accepted. You know, we do a lot of talking about African-American history or what has happened to African-American and also what's happened to our indigenous communities. But you also talk about the history of white people that have come to America and how that history has has had a really big part in what has actually uh, happened here in America. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Most white people that are listening to this, most white bodies that are listening to this, are descended from white bodies that were fleeing something. Mm -hmm. They were fleeing famine, horror, terror, uh, brutality. Uh, plagues, witch burnings, uh, the church, you know, whatever. And so that fleeing came to the shores of America and never got dealt with. So one of the things that happens is that when you are victimized and brutalized, you don't just learn the victim pieces, you also learn the perpetrator pieces. Right. And so that body came here. So one of the things I had a, a white elder say to me, um, when I was writing uh, my grandmother's hands, she said, Resma, uh, I read your book. I love it. She said, I just want one piece that I want you to consider. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? She said, that what white people did to black and indigenous people, they perfected on other white people first. Right. And when she said that, I was like, I mean, it landed. I was like, OK. And then she went on and she said, what the elite white body did to poor white bodies, like hangings and whippings and all of that different type of stuff, land theft, all of that stuff, they did that for a thousand years, right? And then that body came here. Wow. And then she said, when that body came here with both the victim and the perpetrator stuff, they were still poor the huddled masses, still a lot of class stuff, still being put upon by elite white bodies. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then the Bacon Rebellion happened. And if you the people don't know what the Bacon Rebellion is, they need to Google it. The Bacon Rebellion was a time in Virginia history, in United States history, where Bacon um, tried to overthrow uh, Virginia. And he almost won. This is when America were colonies, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, Bacon and his rebellion was filled with escaped enslaved people and white indentured servants. Because the way that the elites were treating 
the poor, whether they were enslaved or, or indentured, they were treating them much the same way that they had fled from. Right after the Bacon Rebellion is one of the first times you start to begin to see the term in Virginia law, white persons, right? Not landowner, not merchant, white persons. At that moment, elite white bodies offered poor white bodies, hey, do y'all want to be white? Because if you're white, here's some of the things that you get. You get jobs to lord over the enslaved. Right. At that moment, the white body became the standard and the black and indigenous body became the deviant, the ultimate deviance from that standard. And so that's why I talk about white body supremacy, the brutalization that poor white people got handed to them for all of those years, for thousands of years, sowed the seeds for them to accept whiteness once they got here. Right. That trauma has never been dealt with. And so that's why it's important for all of us to do our work because we don't want to continue to perpetuate that. And that's why white bodies and white people have to begin to do their work in their communities because they haven't even surfaced this. They don't understand why they, why when, when it comes to race, they get a rage response. When it comes to race, they collapse or shut up. Or when it comes to race, they don't know how to yield and they don't know how to disrupt because they have no practice with it. Yes, You talk about how all of this history is in our bodies today. Say more about that. Before me or you are even born, right? Our mamas and our daddies and our mamas, 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 daddies, 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 mamas, daddy had to try and navigate that structure, right? Right. And so in their bodies, navigating that level of stress produces a higher level of cortisol produces a higher level of epinephrine, produces a higher level of adrenaline, right? So by the time my body and my and my mama and daddy's sperm and egg get together and start developing my nervous system, I'm in this soup of cortisol, mm. Mm. right? Soup of cortisol. But yeah, but I don't have an articulation for it, right? right? But once I get to the planet, what happens is, is that, I start to notice that something is askew, but I don't have a notion for it. And then I start getting older and I don't have, I just, I I don't have a articulation of it, but the notions are roiling around in me. I think something is wrong with me. I think something is wrong with my people. I think something is wrong with my family. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and we never bring it back to being in a structure that predicates my body as deviant and the white body as standard. So this is fascinating. And what it's got me thinking about is how do we translate that to to young children? Just like you said, there's no, you don't really have words for it. And, And as a young child, you don't really know what's happening, but you are absorbing everything in your environment. Yes. And yeah, so what can we do yeah. to help young children? So here's the thing, because you know me, sis. What I say is what we need to have has mm-hmm. to emerge, right? It has to emerge from developing a culture that can actually hold it. Most most of these schools and these structures can't hold what you're asking them to hold. <laughs> you're asking a system to hold talking and dealing and creating a culture around living embodied anti-racist practices and culture. And if, we, if we're talking about white teachers, you're asking people who have not had to navigate collectively race, 
Mm-hmm. They haven't had to develop the racialized nuance around that, right? My whole life has been organized around understanding that part of our job is to keep white people comfortable, right? Because when white people get uncomfortable, we lose something. And that's lodged in our bodies. That's lodged in our bodies, right? Yes. We know that when white people get uncomfortable, black people die. When white people get uncomfortable, indigenous people lose their land. When white people get uncomfortable, black people lose lose access, right? When white people get mm-hmm. uncomfortable, right? So when we notice a white person getting upset or, or around race, most many of us genuflect to what I call racial caping. We jump in and try to say, well, let's just calm this down. Let's just do this. Let's, right? That is a, that, that's in our bodies because of the terror for the last four years. I mean, yeah. and I'm, I'm going to get back to your question, but I'm trying to set it up. If we don't develop a culture and a container around how to understand the embodiment of race, I can't give you tips on what to do if you haven't begun to do that work first with other white bodies or other black bodies, right? You're listening to Early Risers. I'm Diane Halsey, your host, and I am talking today with Resma Minicum. He is a therapist, trauma specialist, and the New York Times bestselling author of My Grandmother's Hands. For young children, they are absorbing what's happening in their caregiver's body. And so when their caregiver gets nervous or tenses up around people of color, they learn that. Right. What kids learn is what your body recoils from and leans into, not just your instruction. Yes. This is why why bodies have to do this work, because kids are not learning from just what your instruction is up on the board. They're learning from, oh, she never wants to talk about race. That's what she's recoiling from. That's so I need to pay attention the same way when my grandmother did the thing with the she goes, boy, cotton got these birds in it. I'm going, I don't know what the hell that is, but I know I need to pay attention to that. <laughs> right. Do you right, understand what right, I mean? Right. That's how we pick it up in an embodiment. And but and yeah. because there's no articulation of it. So one of the things that that adult caregivers can do is be mindful of that, of that piece that what kids are doing is that they're picking up on what you're recoiling from and what you're leaning into. When you omit something, right? They pick up on your omission. Yes, yes, yes. They may not be able to articulate what your what it is, but they pick up on the omission. And so adult caregivers have to begin to do this embodiment practice and work. And a good place to start is my grandmother's hands in that book, right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing that has to happen is that when stuff is happening, rather than asking kids and age appropriately, you know, how are you doing with this? Right. Because that's what we all do where we go. How are you doing with this? And kids are screaming inside like, how are you dealing with this? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And that's what kids will say a lot of times. Right. When you're trying to debrief, they I don't know. I don't know. It's because what you're doing is you're overwhelming them. Right. Okay. So one of the things that you can do is begin to just say to them things like this. How are you sleeping, baby? Mm. Are you eating the same way? Are people holding you? Are you playing a lot? Right? Because what you're trying to do is helping them develop discernment and develop what I call resource icons, right? So resource icons are these things that help their body notice what feels good and what doesn't feel good. So a resource icon is an indicator in my body that tells me 
when something is okay and when something is not okay. What doesn't feel good or constricts in the body can be very overwhelming to children. And so one of the things about the resource icon is getting kids exposed to things that they can sense in their body what feels aligned, right, and resourced, right? These kind of resource icons in the body that says, oh, bing, oh. Yeah. Rather than going in, especially younger kids, rather than going in and asking them about George Floyd, you begin to work with in their bodies. How do you know when you experience something as resourced? How do you know when you experience something as not resourced or potentially dangerous? Actually ask kids that and the way in is to ask them how you're sleeping. And they say, well, you know, I'm not really sleeping very well. I keep waking up. Oh, what do you notice when you're waking up? Like, do you feel good, like ready for the day? Or do you feel bad? Like, you know, you just want to go back to sleep. You see what I mean? So now you're helping them to discern. And you don't do this for a long period of time with younger kids. You just do, you drop it, let them, and then you come back to Mm. it again. And then you come back to it again. And then four days later, you come back to it again, right? And, and, and you're helping them develop an embodied discernment. You're helping them develop these kind of resource icons in the body that says, oh, bing, oh. That's how I'm feeling. And yeah. so yeah. and so being able to pay attention to your body, and I learned this from you, how to scan your body and, and know what your body is telling you. And so that also can help children, white children in particular, to know when they are entering into a place where there is racism because they're going to be pay attention to it. Right. See, white, white children have been taught not to pay attention. White children don't have to pay attention to it and they will receive no consequences for not paying attention to it. Our children are not afforded that. Right. Our children are not afforded not knowing about race or feigning ignorance about race. When I'm walking down the street and the police officer drives past and purposely stares at me all the way down while he's driving past, it is dangerous for my child not to know what that is. White children don't have to learn that at an early age because their survival is not dependent on that. White parents and white teachers have to start teaching their children about that. If, if they're really trying to usher in a, a living embodied anti-racist culture, you they have to make their children aware that their little friend DeAndre has a different life, that the experience is different um, because this structure is predicated on them being human and little DeAndre not. Yes. And that's what I'm hoping that we can do better by our children so that they will get the practice as they are young and then they will grow up, you know, having that practice and then being more comfortable having these conversations and doing this kind of work. And abolishing white body supremacy. My whole thing is creating culture so that can be abolished. And for a white parent to want to do that kind of thing, they really have to do their own work. In their own body. Half, yes. that, mm-hmm. That's primary. Mm-hmm. That's primary. Same with white teachers. For us to sit here and know that most of our kids are going to interact with white female teachers in the school system, and there is no requirement on them doing their living embodied anti-racist work first as a part of their training, is really setting our children up to keep getting murdered. Mm. Or at the very least, to not do well. <laughs> To not do well, cool. or, or 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 be ushered into the prison industrial yeah. complex. Mm-hmm. 
right? It is incumbent upon white teachers uh, and white administrators to get their act together and begin to do living embodied anti-racist work, not to try and save me, but to save their own children. Because if they don't do it, they complicitly pass it down to their children. Mm-hmm. You know, many, you know, parents of young children, we have households that are, you know, really busy and, and, and parents are often tired and overwhelmed by just, you know, life's events. So how can parents create space to do that meaning making around race and racism um, with very young children? Right. So one of the things I think about is we always, whenever we talk about, well, what do we need to do about race and racism? And in people's minds, they think, let's do big shit. <laughs> um, sorry, let's do big stuff, right? Let's let's do let's do big stuff. Let's you know, right? Yeah. And what I believe is that the the really where most of the bang is is really doing the small things repeatedly, right? So pausing repeatedly, right? Think think about this. You said many of our households are chaotic. There's a lot of stuff going on. Imagine if there were moments in time where the younger ones would look over and see mama doing this. Just pausing for a moment. Just pausing, mm-hmm. right? Not, not doing a yoga thing, just pausing. And then mama stops, gets up and finishes doing stuff. stuff. And, then, and then later on, they see mama at her desk, right? And mama just goes, right? Repeatedly. Now, think about a year of that. Huh. Think about what could emerge from that. I don't know what could. I don't know what will, but I know something could emerge if that happens. If mom just pauses, breathes, not say, hey, everybody in the house, I want us all to come around in the circle and sit around the table and just, <laughs> right? Everybody like, I got stuff to do, right? But if mama or daddy does it, all of a sudden people start to be curious about what you're doing. They do, and children are watching right. everything that, their parents are I mean. doing. So yeah. give them something mm-hmm. resourced to watch yes. repeatedly. I'm thinking that if if nothing else, you're you're giving your body time to slow down and pay attention to what's happening in your body at that moment. That's it. The pause is so important, especially in black bodies. We've been taught to override all things override everything in us to get to the next thing and survive right and so the pausing creates this quaking and many of us don't pause because we don't want to experience the quaking but if we do it repeatedly over and over and over again all of a sudden you start to notice differences in between the quaking the back and the floor oh this i experienced this over here but i experienced that over there but if you never pause you never learn the nuance of that right 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 and and learning the nuance of the pause for children what can that do in terms of them being aware of their own body well the number one thing it does is create possibility oh i could oh i i can do that i can just stop for just like 5 seconds and just close my eyes and to go do something else, but then come back again. Um, it, the other thing that it creates is it uh, creates a sense that yes, there are people that are important to me, but I'm important to me too. They won't be able to necessarily articulate that at the beginning. 
the same way that mama pausing won't be able to articulate what's happening for her in that. She won't be able to articulate it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's where a good journal will come in handy. Right. That's where, you know, doing some of the practices in my grandmother's hands will come in handy because, because the stuff that emerges forth has to be examined, has to be interrogated, has to be looked at, has to be turned upside, has to be played with, has to be explored. Right. And you could do that in that pause. Yeah. Yeah. So if, so let's say a white person takes your book and does the practices in this book uh, repeatedly, what do you envision happening for them and in their body? What I envision happening is that they have enough space that then they can begin to get two other bodies and do that, go through the book again and do it with two other bodies for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the only way the the, uh, the white body as a collective is going to create embodied, living embodied anti-racist culture is that they not only do it individually, but they also develop community. around. Absolutely. So I've been having an, uh, such a great time talking with you today. And I just, uh, before we close, I just want to ask you, you know, is there anything else that you might tell people, tell parents or caregivers about how they can understand their own journey of of racial trauma and how they can communicate that to their children? Yeah. My first thing is this, is that trauma is not primary. Black joy is. I love that. Trauma is not primary. Black love is. Trauma is not primary. It is a facet of, of being in a system that's predicated on the white body deeming itself the standard of humanness. It is a facet of it. Trauma is a facet of that, but it is not primary. <laughs> the primariness is my grandmother humming. Primariness is when my grandmother's rocking and I'm, my ear is next to her chest and I hear her heartbeat and she hums and I feel it in her vagal nerve vibrates and I feel it in my vagal nerve. That's primary. That's how we survive this stuff. We didn't do, we didn't just survive this by overriding. We survived this stuff by turning towards each other in times and not on each other. And so for me, for me, and I'm not saying that as a substitute for doing living embodied anti-racist work. I'm saying that what's primary is resource. What's primary is, is Black joy, Black love, and the love that we can demonstrate, right? And dealing with the, the ravaging effects of uh, white body supremacy. So that's what I was saying. Black joy and Black love. I love it. And I, I know I've learned some of this from you as well, that there are parts of our culture, things that are embedded in our culture that help us to heal from all of this. For instance, like I find myself sometimes just, you know, swaying back and forth a little bit. And that's part of our culture about how we, you know, heal in our bodies. And there are so many things like that that we can draw upon. That's it. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I've been talking with Resma Minicum, New York Times bestselling author of My Grandmother's Hands. Number number four. Number four. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> number four on the New York Times bestselling list. Um, he's a therapist and trauma specialist. And I really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you. This is Early Risers from Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you to our executive producer, Andrea Bork, our producer, Melissa Townsend. 
technical director, Alex Simpson, and the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. And thank you to Kaviesh Kabaraj for our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about this conversation and to hear more episodes, go to npr.org backslash early-risers. And to get more resources about talking with very young children about race and racism, go to littlemomentscount.org.